Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Eric Riven is here, and welcome to another awesome episode of Most Notorious, if, if I do say so myself. <laughs> uh, it is about someone that I think, personally, is one of the more compelling gangster characters of the 1930s, Elvin Creepy Carpus. So I'm so pleased to have as my guest today, Julie Thompson. She is the author of The Hunt for the Last Public Enemy in Northeastern Ohio, Elvin Creepy Carpus and His Road to Alcatraz. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Eric. I am so honored and pleased to be with you this evening. Absolutely. Glad to have you. Well, I want to start by saying, phew, that is quite an impressive title for a book. It is. I wanted to make sure that uh, when I came up with a title that Alcatraz is a big part of Carpus's later life, and uh, I wanted to also draw that parallel from Alcatraz back to northeastern Ohio, where everything really all began. Yeah. So Elvin Carpus is an absolutely fascinating character, but he is definitely not one of the more well-known of the Midwest bank-robbing gangsters. What first got you interested in him, and and what prompted you to write a book about him? Well, that's a loaded question, and I think my response is going to be just as uh, informative. I really landed on this particular local topic. It's local for me. Back in 2012, I was trying to come up with an interesting and a unique capstone for my senior year at Hiram College as a history major. And I kept racking my brain going back and forth about what to do. I mean, there's, you know, there's the world wars, which are very popular for people to research. There's the presidents. You have Lincoln. You have Washington. Uh, Nixon is always very popular. And although those are extraordinary topics, I wanted to do something that had not been unearthed. 
And my husband and I actually had the same seventh grade social studies teacher. Her name is Iva Walker. And back in seventh grade, years and years ago, he recalled that she had mentioned about a great train robbery just three miles from my backyard in Garrettsville, northeastern Ohio. And he suggested that I maybe look into that topic, that there may be more to that story than what folks believe. And so I kind of put it in the back of my mind. I really didn't take it as a serious competitor for a topic. And uh, I happened to be weeks later watching the movie Public Enemies starring Johnny Depp as John Dillinger. And I noticed uh, during a scene with the FBI's government men who were actually getting ready to raid the apartment of uh, machine gun George Kelly, they had on the outside of the walls in this scene the word G-men written all over the wall. And it hit me like a lightning bolt. And coincidentally... The mascot of the athletic teams of my high school alma mater is the Fighting G-Men. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, there's such a coincidence here. There has to be so much more to the story than what anybody in my neck of the woods believed. And so I contacted my local historical societies here and was informed that, you know, the folklore behind the mascot at James A. Garfield here in northeastern Ohio focuses around the great train robbery of 1935, and it was Alvin Creepy Carpus's last crime. He successfully pulled off the last great train heist in American history in Garrettsville, and when the FBI men came to Garrettsville, They flooded this town, and when the schools consolidated into James A. Garfield Local School District in 1955, they adopted this fighting G-men as their mascot. And so this unfolded for me a whole entire story. Uh, Carpus, notably, is not a well-known gangster of the 1930s, from everybody I've spoken to, from historians to people that are just history buffs, and what made him unique was not only the fact that he survived that era and lived into his twilight years, he was 71 when he passed, but the fact that when he escaped from Garrettsville on November 7th, 1935, he was the first person in history to escape a crime by airplane. He took that chartered plane from Port Clinton, Ohio, near Putin Bay, near Lake Erie, and he uh, uh, used a prohibition pilot who was a rum runner during uh, that period and was dropped off, so to speak, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which was another hotbed for gangsters, and so... About a month or two later, he was captured by J. Edgar Hoover himself. Uh, Carpus actually saved J. Edgar Hoover's directorship. Hoover was at the point because he had never made an arrest himself in his career of being fired by Congress. And so the capture of Carpus saved his directorship. 
He was the last public enemy of the Depression era, and he was probably the most cunning and just street-smart criminal of that entire era. And so, being that the story really unfolded three miles from my, my backyard in Gearsville, Ohio, and he set a precedence for so many things in criminal history. He forced the FBI also to uh, advance its intelligence-gathering techniques, like using informants. So really what Hoover needed to capture Carpus was not the fingerprinting, um, not the silver nitrate uh, technique. What they needed was people who knew where Carpus was going to be hiding, people that would be willing, such as moles, his girlfriend, the madams of these brothels where he was staying, to give them information. And so that's really where the FBI started utilizing informants on a regular basis. And it eventually led to his capture on May 1st, 1936, in New Orleans. And so that is just the tip of the iceberg of why I became interested in this story. The mascot, the fighting G-Men, still holds today. It is the only mascot of its kind in the country. And so this story continues to uh, propagate throughout our region, and it is picking up uh, speed uh, the longer the book is out. And so I think that is a good introduction into why I became involved in researching this particular uh, crime, this criminal and uh, how it had a local basis, but led to lasting national implications. Absolutely. And I do want to point out to listeners, you've got that Northeastern Ohio mention in the title of your book, and I know that area plays a significant role in your story, but this isn't a regional history book either. I mean, it tells the life of Carpus from beginning to end. And he was in all sorts of places and getting into all sorts of trouble. Correct. A lot of people come into it in this area, in my area in particular, in northeastern Ohio, thinking that the entire book is just about northeastern Ohio. But it encompasses, um, as I mentioned in the onset, you know, really his life from the very beginning, a young a young boy growing up in Kansas, in Topeka, Kansas, how he became at that point because his house sat up against the Santa Fe Railroad that ran through there. And that's how he really became interested in trains and riding the rails free of charge. And so it starts from the very beginning of his life in the Midwest, And it ends up, uh, towards the end of the book, his last crime being pulled off successfully uh, in northeastern Ohio. And how that crime provided evidence for him to be tracked, located, and captured in New Orleans on May 1st, 1936, by J. Edgar Hoover himself. From there, he had a very lengthy stay nearly 26 years at Alcatraz, and so it talks in depth about his stay also at Alcatraz, and then it concludes with 
how he was paroled in 1969 and really how he lived, you know, a few more years into his twilight years, went on this book promotion tour and then winded up in Spain, a place that he was always uh, enamored by. And they were set to make a movie of his life in the mid-1970s. Actually, Paramount Pictures was working with a uh, former FBI agent, and the FBI, FBI agent actually read Carpus's autobiography put out, put out in 1971, and he became um, really engrossed about the life and crimes of Carpus himself, decided to write a letter to Carpus, and they became pen pals, and eventually um, this FBI agent, former FBI agent, went to Spain to meet with Carpus, and uh, unfortunately, Carpus died uh, in 1971, and the film was never completed. So it is really a fascinating life from start to finish. Yes, for sure. If we could, I would like to ask you to give us a physical description of Carpus. And I'm guessing that many of us might have a stereotype of, of criminals from this era, swaggering, fast-talking, full of charisma. And that really wasn't Carpus at all, was it? Yes. He's been described by quite a few people, quite a few different people over the years. I can tell you that he had a height of about five feet, uh, nine and three quarters inches, very small frame. He was only about 130 pounds and he had dark hair and most folks in their reporting will indicate that he has very, he had very vivid blue eyes. That was one of the more notable and remarkable features about his physical. Uh, he had dark hair. Uh, and they also said, uh, notably, that he had a very sinister smile, almost a, a crooked, mischievous, I'm up to no good type of smile, hence the name that a lot of people associate for the reason of calling him Creepy Carpet. So he was, he was not a charismatic individual of the time, like you might associate with John Dillinger, who was so notably loved by the public because he was just so charismatic, whether it be the women or dealing with law enforcement. He was not that type of individual. He was very quiet. He was very reserved, and he was always well aware of his surroundings and always thinking about his next move. So those are the things that come to mind when researching him for the number of years that I have that stick out. You mentioned the common perception of the nickname Creepy. Um, it's based on his weird smile. But in your book, you talk about another origin story for his nickname. And it came from his ability to sneak around without being caught by police. Basically, creep around. Yes, that is correct, according to what Robert Livesey, who was the second biographer on Carpus's story um, called On the Rock. It's about his years on Alcatraz. He does have uh, an addendum to the book that indicates that Carpus later indicated it was not because he had this sinister smile that he was called creepy. 
it was because he was always able to shirk the cops and get away from them. And as I indicated again, he was the only gangster of that period to actually survive into his twilight years. So according to Carpus, the reason he had the name Creepy was because that was the name um, given to him by the cops who never were able to capture him. And so when the APB system was still in its infancy and the police departments were being modernized at the time, uh, they would talk to one, one another over the, uh, you know, through the All Points Bulletin and they would indicate to one another that, uh, boy, that guy sure is creepy. He always gets away. So I did want to ask you, too, about his nationality. He was born to Lithuanian immigrants in Montreal, wasn't he? That is correct. He was born August 10th, 1908. Uh, he was, his parents actually went on vacation back and forth to Montreal, and Carpus arrived there as a newborn. And so that was his, uh, that was his homeland. What was his, his real name? His real name was Albin. Spelled with a B, so it's A-L-B-I-N, Francis Karpowitz. So it's spelled K-A-R-P-O-W-I-C-Z. So I just want folks to know that he's referenced by a number of different aliases, such as Raymond, but his actual birth name is Albin Francis Karpowitz. And so it was uh, his elementary school teacher that uh, changed his name to Alvin Carpus because it was much easier to pronounce. How old was he when he started turning down the wrong path? What were his first crimes? Well, he was about 10 years old um, when he started really getting into uh, robbing stores. He hung around because of the area where he grew up. It was the edge of town. And it's where a lot of the the whores uh, and the pimps and the petty gamblers operated. And so he would run errands for these particular uh, individuals. Uh, did it, of course, in carpet style with a lot of arrogance. And he often exclaimed that he, quote, naturally liked the action, end quote. So by the time he was 13 years old, left uh, the school system for good, so he completed his education only to the eighth grade, which wasn't out of the norm during that time period. A lot of the young men as adolescents usually left school between seventh and eighth grade. And as I mentioned, because his house sat up against a railroad right away, he became enamored with trains. And, of course, he wanted to see the world, and he wanted to go everywhere. So being that his his parents kept pretty busy, his dad was a very hardworking individual, Carpus kind of ran around at will. And his father, John Karpowitz, in 1923, took a job as a janitor in Chicago. And at that time, Carpus decided to move with his parents and his sisters to the Windy City, and he actually kept up the street life for almost two years there. He worked as an errand boy, and then also he did a stint as a shipping clerk for a drug company. Um, but everything changed, of course, during the spring of 1925 when Carpus was diagnosed with, quote, some kind of heart trouble. 
And so the lock, the local doctor told him, uh, believe it or not, to take less strenuous work. And Carpus laughed about that. He talks about it in his autobiography as well that, you know, I had, he said, quote, I had to quit my honest job because it was too much for my health, end quote. So he went back to his criminal ways and he returned to Topeka from Chicago in 1925 where um, he basically kept up a one-man crime wave. And after some time back in Kansas, he hooked up with a friend who Carpus stated was, quote, as inclined to crime as he was. And so together they ran a hamburger joint that doubled as a, a base for peddling illegal booze. And then in their spare time, they broke into warehouses and they rode the rails. That's, again, where Carpus really fell in love with trains. And he often described his love as, quote, the sound and feel of trains being the foremost thing in his mind. So then on October 31st, 1925, he was 17 years old, and eventually he was caught here riding the roof of the Pan American Express into Florida. So he received a sentence of 30 days of hard labor, and this hard labor was eventually suspended in lieu of $25 and some court costs. And so unfortunately at this time, this is where he developed really his first criminal record. So by 1926, Carpus's burglary crimes got the best of him, and uh, this petty crime gave the judge enough cause to sentence him with five to ten years. And so this is really where things began to take off for him with his criminal career. On uh, February 25, 1926, he was received to the State Industrial Reformatory in Hutchinson, Kansas. And it was really here that he started learning from the guys at the top, the burglars and the bank robbers. And so he was assigned as a baker's helper. And working as a baker for seven days a week really didn't align well with Carpus. And he was continually belligerent. And this resulted in him spending a lot of time in solitary confinement. In the meantime, while Carpus was there in the reformatory, he uh, came into contact with a criminal named Lawrence or Larry Duvall. And uh, Larry was a safe cra uh, cracker, a cop killer. And also, he was a native of Rockford, Ohio, which is a small village here in the western part of the state. And so Carpus and uh, Larry uh, basically slept in neighboring cells at Hutchinson, and Carpus often described him as a master of picking locks. Uh, their conversations went on for nearly three years until it dawned on the young man that they should really break out of this place. And so by March of 1929, Carpus and Larry Duvall escaped from the Kansas Reformatory, and Carpus immediately rejoined his parents in Chicago. He did not go back to Kansas. And while living with his parents, he was uh, rejoined by Larry Duvall. And in no time at all, of course, they turned away from their lawful pursuits, and they drifted into Kansas City. And for that entire year, they were on the run, and they were successful in a series of robberies pulled off in probably half a dozen states. And then over the next few years, Carpus and Duvall expanded their outfit 
and aligned themselves with other gang members, um, including uh, the well-known Freddie Barker, as well as his brother, uh, Arthur Doc Barker, Charles Fitzgerald, known as Old Fitz, Harvey Bailey, Harry Sawyer, Jack Pfeiffer, John Brock, and George Burhead Keedy, uh, the last couple from Oklahoma. So it's here where the Barker Carpus gang was formed. And so that is really the beginning of his, his criminal career and his part in the Barker Carpus gang. We will be back after a brief break. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. Can you tell us about how he meets Freddie Barker and, and how they get along? Yes, absolutely. Boy, I think there can be much said about choosing your friends wisely. <laughs> the amazing thing about the relationship, and I probably should shed a little light for viewers that may not be too uh, well-informed about the Barkers, they actually, their origins are rooted in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri and Arkansas. 
and they were uh, it, they were infamously publicized as the core of the Barker Carpus thing, um, which really comprised typical Southwestern bandits armed with Tommy guns. And throughout criminal you know criminal history here in the United States, the figurehead of the gang was the mother Ma, who was born Arizona Donnie Clark. And she was commonly known also as Kate, but the members affectionately adopted her as Ma or Mother Barker. And there were four sons, and um, it was really during his time at the Kansas State Penitentiary, once I, I left off where Carpenter and Duvall were in Chicago, then they came to Kansas City, they uh, they actually got into a lot of trouble, and they, they both were captured. And because Carpus already had a criminal record, he was not taken back to the reformatory. Uh, this time, he was taken to the Kansas State Penitentiary. And this was, again, in 1929. And really, it was that first, I believe, that first night in uh, Kansas State that Carpus and Freddie Barker were on their way to dinner, and Carpus uh, kind of just glanced at at Freddie. And Freddie, now he was he was kind of a short guy. He had sandy blonde hair. He had a kind of a, a nice grin, but he had a mouthful of gold teeth, and he was not more than uh, five feet four. So a little guy, and he stopped Carpus on their way to dinner and introduced himself, and he said hi. I'm Freddie Barker. I know who you are. And so from that introduction forward, the two hit it off. And so with their burgeoning friendship, Freddie arranged eventually for Carpus to be moved to his own cell. And he had actually been in there. Freddie had been in uh, Kansas since 1926 on a 5- to 10-year burglary sentence. And he was a tough and experienced criminal. And so Carpus, from that first meeting, really looked up to Freddie. But Carpus did indicate that Freddie, quote, was a natural-born killer. So that was their first introduction. And eventually, when uh, they were released, this is where they really got into St. Paul. And uh, they really started getting into bigger and better crimes, which eventually led to two kidnappings one of uh, Brewer William Ham in the St. Paul area, and also Edward Bremer. And so between those two kidnappings, they, the gang secured about $300,000. And I think you quote Carpus as saying that the Barker-Carpus gang really began on New Year's Eve 1931 at the Green Lantern Saloon in downtown St. Paul. It was a who's who of criminal characters and this is when Carpus claims the gang officially began. Right, absolutely. Um, that really, that formation of the Carpus Barker gang, which is how the FBI records refer to the gang, not Barker Carpus, but Carpus Barker, because Hoover always believed that Carpus was really the brains behind the gang. And so it was really that formation, which dates back to December 31st of 1931, where Carpus and Freddie and Ma were running from the murder of a sheriff, and uh, they were told by um, a cohort of Freddie Barker's 
to head to St. Paul, where they would be safe because it was a sanctuary for criminals. And so uh, they became acquainted with a criminal bigwig in this underworld there in St. Paul. He was a former bootlegger and a crime boss, and his name was Harry Dutch Sawyer. And so the initial contact with Harry Sawyer was made with Carpus and Freddie through Herbert Farmer. And it was Farmer who knew that Sawyer could afford protection for the gang, which the gang was hot at the time because of the uh, the murder of the sheriff. And so, again, Sawyer utilized as many police connections in St. Paul to shelter these fugitives. So we've talked about some of the stuff that happened in St. Paul on this show before. But let's just do a quick summary, a quick timeline of Carpus's criminal activities in the Twin Cities. As you mentioned, the third Northwestern bank robbery in Minneapolis, uh, where the gang killed two police officers. And when they stopped to change a tire in St. Paul, they murdered a man who stopped to offer help. Right. In South St. Paul, they robbed a payroll and shot to death another police officer. Then the William Ham Jr. and the Edward Bremer kidnappings. Right. I want to ask you to expand on this a little. The Barker Carpus gang, Carpus Barker gang, Barker Carpus Carpus Barker. <laughs> I guess if you can say it four times fast, it becomes a tongue twister. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Hoover was on to something, right? I mean, Barker Carpus has a better ring to it, but Carpus probably should be first. I mean, he was this brilliant, calm strategist with a genius-level IQ, allegedly anyway, and he complimented the Barker brothers as well in, in the sense that he came up with the ideas and they were the muscle, the trigger men. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. It, Carpus numerous times talked about both Arthur Doc Barker and Freddie Barker as hotheads who were uh, willing to pull out a gun and shoot someone at a moment's notice, and Carpus was absolutely the reserved, the critical thinker of the gang, and Hoover recognized that. And so, really, the research in my book weighs that balance of power between J. Edgar Hoover and Alvin Creepy Carpet, not the unbalanced power between the Barkers and Carpus himself. And so what, that's what's so fascinating, I think, about this research Carpus mentioned how he was smarter than any FBI guy, how he would have made a great law enforcement official and even better, uh, even better than the premier law enforcer, J. Edgar Hoover. And so Carpus, he was quite confident in his criminal abilities and he always read the newspapers. He always was well aware of what was coming in advance because Unfortunately, the FBI would usually announce what their next move was going to be in the local papers or in the national papers. And so Carpus was really driving that that whole gang. I do want to ask you this. A lot of the information we have from Carpus comes from his autobiography. He obviously had every incentive to make himself look as good as possible. He minimized his involvement in, in the gang's murders. He was a narcissist as well. It's it's pretty evident after reading him talk about himself. What do you think? How much 
of that book is the truth and how much is straight up exaggeration or even lies? Wow. I don't think anybody, whether it's Mr. Trent who did the first biography with Carpus or even Robert Livesey would be able to answer that definitely one way or another. But Carpus did say he was in a Canadian broadcast he did in 1976 by Larry Solway. He indicated he was going to tell anybody, you know, what exactly happened with the deaths of these individuals, law enforcement or civilians during these robberies. And I believe from the research from the seven, now seven years I've spent looking at FBI documents, weighing what his cohort said, like Freddie Hunter, like Harry Campbell, and from Carpus himself, that Carpus was not beyond reproach here. He definitely killed some people. Um, he could never admit to that because he could still get the electric chair uh, as long as he was alive, and that being the reason he likely never admitted it. But he is definitely not beyond reproach. I do believe that he was responsible for a number of murders, whether consciously or unconsciously, despite if it was in the heat of the crime. And I believe he was, like he indicated, just worried about himself and his gang members. And the goal was to get what they could get while they could get it and get out alive. And that's my take on it. So 1934-35 are the years when most of these bank-robbing gangsters started going down, including most of the Barker Carpus gang, and yet <laughs> Elvin Carpus managed to elude capture for a while longer. Can you talk a bit about the breakup of the, the gang and what Carpus did afterwards? Yes. During September 1934, uh, this was after the second kidnapping of Edward Bremer. The gang comprising, of course, Alvin, Freddie and Doc Barker, Harry Campbell, and some others were living in uh, the city of Cleveland. And at that time, they had on them $100,000 uh, from that $200,000 kidnapping of Edward Bremer. And it was uh, about a couple months earlier that, that the federal grand jury in St. Paul had returned the Bremer kidnapping indictments for Carpus and the rest of the Carpus Barker associates, including Doc Barker, Freddie Barker, Volney Davis, Harry Campbell, Harry Sawyer, uh, and all of those rest that were involved in that second kidnapping. And so, they left the St. Paul area, and by the spring of 1934, they were all living in the city of Cleveland. And Carpus had taken a job working for the Harvard Club, which was a gambling casino joint just outside the city. And it was reported in the Cleveland newspaper that on September 5th of 1934, uh, Winona Wolcott, known as Burdette, Gladys Sawyer, Harry Sawyer's wife, and Paula Harmon, who was Doc Barker's girlfriend, had a wild girls' night out at the Bronze Bar in the Hotel Cleveland. And so, being in a bar, the girls, of course, became very intoxicated. And 
the newspaper reported that these three women who were well supplied with money and, and valuable diamonds were arrested by a policewoman. And during the uh, scuffle of being arrested, one of the girls punched the officer in the face. And so, of course, the girls were arrested. And then the bureau agents were contacted by the police department, letting them know of the women's arrest. And this was before the time that John Dillinger was shot uh, in July of 1934 outside the Biograph Theater by FBI agents. And the uh, Cleveland police and the FBI field office in Cleveland thought that these girls may be affiliated with the John Dillinger gang. And so when they were accosted in Cleveland, a 38 caliber automatic pistol along with two slips of paper with Cleveland addresses written on them were found in their car. And it was a five-year-old girl who was later identified as Francine Sawyer, uh, the foster daughter of Harry Sawyer. She was found with the women, and without any hesitation, of course, being a little girl, she told the police about the car. And so when the police found the car in a nearby parking lot, the women, of course, didn't relinquish any information to the cops or to the FBI, but Francine did. And she told the police that the three women never worked, and they always had lots of money. And essentially, this little girl's story led the police to evidence that convinced them that Doc Barker had been in Cleveland during most of the summer of 1934. So police found this slip of paper, and it had the address near the uh, house near the corner of West Boulevard and Lorraine Avenue. It also had a set of fingerprints that proved to be the same classification numbers, the fingerprints of Doc Barker who they previously located his fingerprints also on the gas cans during the kidnapping. And so they put two and two together. The Cleveland police revealed that a seven-year-old photo of Freddie Barker was positively identified by some residents who lived near uh, the gang's Cleveland West 171st Street hideout. So these facts were then turned over by the Cleveland police to the Federal Department of Justice agents, and then the agents decided to release the women, now knowing that they were moles uh, associated with the Carpet Sparker gang, and uh, indicated there was no reason that they could hold the women. And so the thinking here is that the women were let go in order that their subsequent actions might lead federal agents to the new hideout of the Carpus Barker gang, who had fled immediately after that and uh, made it to Florida uh, because they got a tip because Carpus worked at the Harvard Club that the police found these things. The women were in their custody, were in police custody, and they were going to be captured at any moment. So the men fled. The women were in police custody. And so they all ended up in Florida. And Florida is eventually where Ma and Freddie Barker, who were running a vacation home, were shot to death by FBI agents. And uh, right before that, Doc Barker, because of his fingerprints, 
and also from information received by a disgruntled girlfriend back in Cleveland was apprehended by agents at his apartment. And so the police were able to put all this together, first with the capture of Doc Barker, and then uh, by capturing Doc Barker, they found a map in Doc Barker's apartment that had Florida with vacation spots and a ring about around a particular location in Ocala, Florida, and in turn were able to locate Ma and Freddie Barker. Had a shootout uh, with Ma and Freddie Barker, the FBI agents did, uh, in January of 1935. Ma and Freddie were killed, and now Doc Barker was in uh, prison. And so that was basically the majority of uh, the Barker part of the Carpus Barker gang. And so that left Carpus on the run, along with Harry Campbell and some other strays. Really, there wasn't much left of the gang. And that's where Harry, after the shooting death of Mon Freddie Barker, Harry Campbell and Carpus escaped to Atlantic City. They were only there about a day and a half or so, and the police found them there. There was a shootout, and that's where Carpus and Harry Campbell began to make their way back to northeastern Ohio, and really where all of his last crimes unfolded in northeastern Ohio, leading to his last crime of the um, successful train heist, the last one in American history, and led to his path to Alcatraz. I want to get to the train robbery, um, but a question first. John Dillinger and Elvin Carpus, was there ever any interaction between them besides the, the Public Enemy movie with uh, with uh, Giovanni Ribisi as Carpus and, and yeah. Johnny Depp as Dillinger? <laughs> there was actually first interaction between Elvin Carpus and John Dillinger. Um, during an early 1990s interview, that actually historian Paul McAbee made uh, with Carpus's nephew. Um, he indicated in that interview that there was some communication between John Dillinger and uh, Alvin Carpus that Dillinger wanted the Carpus gang, Carpus Barker gang, and the Dillinger gang to merge together to pull off, I believe it was seven robberies in one day in the same area. And Carpus's nephew said that Carpus wanted no part of that, and he did not like John Dillinger's braggadocio style. And that is the only confirmed communication by a witness, a family member, that I know or was able to find that they had between the two of them. There may have been other forms of communication by telephone, through word of mouth, through related gang members, but that is the only thing I know for fact that they communicated on. But my understanding from that interview with Carpus's nephew is that Carpus really didn't like John Dillinger. I'm sure we've covered this question before in the show, but since we're doing kind of a deep dive on Carpus, He's tied forever to Ma Barker. Allegedly, Hoover had little to no information about her. 
before she was gunned down by G-men in Florida. When the smoke cleared and they found her body, Hoover created the myth of Mob Barker to cover up the fact that they had just killed an old woman. What are your feelings on that? Yes, I think I somewhat addressed this in the book. Hopefully I was successful. I mentioned previously that Carpus, once he was paroled and he was he was taken back to uh, Montreal, Canada, and then from there, the last couple years of his life, he lived in Spain, where he uh, where he passed. But uh, during his time in Spain, that agent became friends with him that was working to produce that film was Special Agent Thomas McDade, and he is actually he was actually an agent who was there at the shootout. So it was January 16, 1935, that FBI agents led by agent in charge Earl J. Conley, uh, they took their position surrounding the cottage there at Oklawaha, Florida. And according to McDade's account and the accounts of FBI agents, um, after the shootout, it was McDade that went in and he basically assessed the situation. He took photographs. A lot of these photographs are available on eBay and other through other news sources. But in the written account of Agent McDade, Kate Barker was found lying on her side behind the door, and her arm was cradling a Thompson submachine gun with a 100-shot drum, which she had been firing a 45 caliber pistol damaged by a bullet which had hit it lay near her wounded hand. The bodies of the Barkers, of course, remained untouched until arrangements were made with the coroner. But once they scavenged the bodies, $14,312 were recovered, and four $1,000 bills of that were recovered from a money belt worn by Fred Barker, and then 10 $1,000 bills were recovered from the pocketbook of Kate Barker. And according to the FBI, none of this money could be identified as part of any of the Brummer or Ham kidnapping ransom amounts. So no, she's guilty, as indicated by Agent McDade and the photograph that she had in her arm cradled a Thompson submachine gun with a 100-shot drum, which had been fired. That is Agent McDay's written account. Back again after these messages. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we are back for a final time. So tell us about the train robbery. Again, Carpus is the last one of the core group still around, and he still has his old traveling associate, Harry Campbell, to run with. How did he get this idea for a train robbery, and why Garrettsville, Ohio? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Eric. It's kind of a progressive story that leads up to this. As they made their way back from Atlantic City through northeastern Ohio, uh, they actually kidnapped a doctor on their way back into Medina, Ohio, uh, in the Wadsworth area. And from there, they made their way to uh, Toledo, where Carpus, Harry Campbell, and a few others stayed in a brothel. And so it is here in this brothel where Carpus really started thinking about his next score because, of course, they were running out of money again. And he knew that the Federal Reserve Bank shipped payrolls for Youngstown and the Warren Industrial Companies shipped them out on certain days of the week. And so the train, the Erie train, carried the the payrolls from the Federal Reserve Bank in Cleveland, left Cleveland City, making its way through Manaway, Garrettsville. The final destination was Pittsburgh. And he knew that Garrettsville was a tucked away, historic, very scenic but remote area of northeastern Ohio. He knew the train would stop there, uh, carrying two payrolls to Youngstown and to Warren. And so he started planning at that point in time that, gee, there's a lot of money coming into these areas of Warren and, and Youngstown. They're going to stop and let passengers on and off in Garrettsville. And I think this is the perfect score that I can make because I'm expecting about $300,000 in these payrolls. So that's how he first began planning this at the Toledo, Ohio brothel. And he got information at the time he was just with Harry Campbell, who again was the only associate left from the original Carpus Barker gang. And so... Yes, so the two of them, and they took in some other strays uh, through contacts they had in Oklahoma, who uh, these individuals who were in and out of federal prison as well, traveled from Oklahoma to Ohio to pull off this train caper. And the only thing that Carpus didn't like about the Garrettsville heist is the fact that it was near a college town named Hiram, And he was afraid there would be a lot of students roaming around on the station's platform. But he indicated that was the risk he was willing to take. So the plan was that they would pull off the train heist in Garrisonville. They would take their getaway car through all the back roads to Port Clinton. Nobody would ever suspect them. They had a pilot willing and ready to take them by plane the next morning towards Hot Springs, Arkansas, and then on the way, drop off the folks from Oklahoma, the couple of gentlemen from Oklahoma, back at their homesteads. And so he knew that this was a foolproof plan. So the day of the robbery, no one was hurt too badly and things went off pretty much without a hitch, right? Well, there was a male custodian 
on the day of November 7th in the afternoon, once the train stopped, it pulled up to the depot. From my research, nobody, nobody got off the train. So this is the other thing. Nobody got off the train. So nobody was seeing what happened within minutes. So the train pulled up. Of course, you know, you can hear the whistle blowing. The train pulled up. It stopped. Uh, the doors to the mail cab opened. This would be where all the, the mail and all of the payrolls were being, you know, housed. And there were three custodians that were watching over this. And when the uh, doors opened, Carpus had his gun leveled at the custodian. At that time, he only saw two, two men. And so when the custodian saw Carpus with his gun leveled at them, they were in shock, but immediately slammed the doors and hid in, in the mail cap. And so Carpus, that's when he threatened to throw the stick of dynamite in. You probably recall reading that he said, you know, I took along for extra precaution in case I needed it. You know, the cigars and the dynamite. And if I needed to, I could throw uh, the dynamite in there to ensure that those cab doors stayed open. So once the custodian slammed the doors and hid, he threatened the dynamite, and this time the doors came back open, and there were three gentlemen, including a heavyset uh, Negro, as Carpus called him, who was very belligerent about coming to Carpus's will to take the mail and the payroll. And so Carpus was angry at the time, of course, because he wanted to get out of there. He wanted to get what he needed, so he turned to Harry who was behind him and said, Harry, look out, I'm going to shoot this guy. And from the records that I secured, both through FBI and uh, Carpus's account and others, Harry was so nervous that he accidentally fired off a shot. It ricocheted into the metal roof of the mail cab, and it grazed one of the mail custodians near the ear. And so that was the only... Uh, that was really the only uh, physical tragedy of the train heist. And so, lo and behold, of course, Carpus, you know, then then all the custodians, all three of them, they were scared to death, and they basically relinquished all the, uh, the, the payroll. So, yeah, they basically lined up about a dozen men and women on the station's platform that, you know, were in the depot, and one of the gentlemen I actually did the interview with who was there, his name was Mr. Uh, Earl Davis, and he carried uh, all the mailbags from the mail cab to the getaway car. And I think you may recall that I indicated not one for one moment did Mr. Davis anticipate grabbing those guns he saw in the back seat of that getaway car to try and take matters into his own hand or to save the day. And so once Mr. Davis loaded those pouches, they got away in their Plymouth sedan. There was a coal dealer who followed the car part away, but Carpus was, uh, they were going so fast that his car could not keep up with Carpus's car, and they lost Carpus on his way to get to Port Clinton. Wild story. It is. So how long from the train heist to the point where Carpus was captured in New Orleans? 
Yeah, he was, so that happened November 7, 1935. As I mentioned, they immediately drove as quickly as they could to Port Clinton. They stayed the night in the pilot's house near the airport. The guys did. Now, Harry Campbell stayed back. Harry Campbell had, in the interim of all this going on, he'd married a girl from Toledo. And he stayed back in Toledo with her. And then Carpus, uh, John Brock, who turned evidence against Carpus later, Freddie Hunter from Warren, got on the flight the next morning. They dropped Carpus and Freddie Hunter off in Hot Springs, and then they dropped John Brock and the other guy off in Oklahoma. So from that point on, Carpus went to Texas. He went to a couple other different states trying to kind of garner different areas that may be good for another score because this was a clean break for him. And he got away with, unfortunately, only $46,000 in cash and bonds. He didn't get the $300,000 that he expected because the major payroll that was going to Youngstown went out the previous day, and he did not realize it. So he didn't get the 300000 but he got the forty-six. For someone who prided themselves on meticulous planning, that really must have chapped his eye. It did. It did. He actually planned to foresee what was going on that train. But the, one of the guys from Oklahoma, it was supposed to be waiting in Cleveland as the train took off to gauge what was going to be loaded onto the train. And in, in that mail cab came down with, uh, I believe, gonorrhea, and he got so deathly ill that he ended up in a Toledo hospital, and he was there until after the train heist. So Carpus, and this was within a couple of days before the heist, Carpus couldn't find anybody he trusted enough or knew well enough to take his place to do that spying, and so Carpus just took the risk that, hey, I'm going to go through with the plan without this guy. Otherwise, he probably would have been able to gauge that. So how did the capture of Carpus go down? How did Hoover get him? Well, it was through the informant system that I mentioned that the FBI was really trying to develop. I, I mentioned in the very beginning that Doc Barker was really connected with the kidnappings because he left his fingerprints on the gas cans. You know, when they kidnapped these guys, they went far out of the area, out of state, and they would take gas cans and refuel. And so they didn't think about the fingerprinting because the silver nitrate fingerprinting was in its infancy during that period. And really, that's how the ball began rolling with connecting Doc Barger and then Carpus and then everyone else with those two kidnappings. But they couldn't do that with Carpus when it came to these last crimes because he would move, unlike Bonnie and Clyde, who stayed in like a five-state radius, you know, before they were captured by the Texas Rangers, he went anywhere. He would go to Texas and he'd go to the opposite end of the country in northeastern Ohio. And so he always kept them guessing where he was going to end up next. But it was really through this last madam that he met in Hot Springs. And they actually got to know her because they had planned to go to Hot Springs after the train heist. They got to know her 
through one of their associates in Hot Springs that she was a protector of these gangsters that came there for refuge. And so they worked out ahead of time with her to stay with her once they escaped from Ohio and got to Hot Springs. And so it was this lady known as uh, her alias was Grace Goldstein. Her real name was Jewel Laverne Grayson. And she was the madam that the FBI caught up with that they threatened her and threatened her family in order to find out what she knew about Corpus's whereabouts. As I mentioned, he traveled a lot. He didn't stay in any one place for any given amount of time. If he was stationed somewhere, he would be traveling looking at other scores. And so the FBI found out that uh, she basically was the go-to girl for most of these gangsters. They knew that Corpus had to be with her in some respect. And so by threatening her and watching her, they were to find out where Freddie Hunter was staying in New Orleans. Now, Carpus and Freddie stayed in different spots. Carpus was so smart, he didn't tell Grace Goldstein where he was staying, but she knew that Carpus would go to Freddie Hunter's to take his meal. And so she knew where his apartment was. And so she told the FBI, again, uh, the agent in charge, Earl J. Conley, again, from Cincinnati, Ohio. So he basically worked with Grace Goldstein to find out where Freddie Hunter's apartment was. And that, it just so happened that when they got out there, 5 o'clock in the afternoon on May 1st, 1936, Carpus had just come back that morning from another area. I think he was out of state looking at another possible train robbery. And he and Freddie Hunter stepped out of the apartment. They were on their way to pick up Carpus's car, which was in the garage, having worked on, on it. And FBI, including uh, Tolson, Clyde Tolson, along with J. Edgar Hoover and about uh, 16 other agents, were in their cars across the street waiting, you know, surveilling uh, the apartment building, not knowing that Carpus and Hunter were going to step out. And so that's how really the informant process is how they were they were captured. Hoover was really trying to make this arrest a photo opportunity, right? And and Carpus saw through the BS, called him out on it, and it really escalated the animosity between the two. Yeah, I, I think the animosity surged once Carpus was captured. Hoover he had to capture Carpus. I mean. If he did not capture Carpus and make Carpus his first arrest, he was going to keep his directorship. So the thing is, is that I think I mentioned by mid-1935, Hoover was requesting, I believe it was $5 million additional in funding, which was coming under scrutiny for this war on crime. And if you recall through history, FDR started this war on crime, the crime bill in 1934. And folks knew that Hoover had delegated his G-men to make all these arrests, to take all the heat, to take all on all the danger, and capture these public enemies. And so when he was requesting this funding in mid-1934, the chairman of the subcommittee that, uh, that oversaw the appropriations had a bone to pick with Hoover, and he asked, he said, have you ever made an arrest yourself? 
And Hoover said, well, no, not directly, but I've, I basically directed all of these arrests from my office. So from that meeting with Congress, Hoover knew that his days were numbered. And if he didn't make this official arrest with Carpus himself, and it was all about timing, that he was not going to be able to maintain his directorship because he had too many enemies in Congress. And so Carpus, from that point on, um, and that was the month of April. So on April 11th, 1936, that is when Hoover met with this committee uh, regarding the $5 million additional in funding for the war on crime. He basically did everything he could to try and find where Carpus was hiding out. And so with basically within those next three weeks, that's how motivated Hoover was. Um, he used this informant system to basically track down uh, Freddie Hunter and essentially track down Carpus to make him his capture. But Hoover himself indicated that the capture went with Carpus was that he was in a car with Clyde Tolson and two other agents across the street from the apartment and just so happened that Carpus and Hunter walked out and Hoover said they went to move their vehicle across the street to get to Carpus uh, and Hunter before they entered their car. And uh, just as Hoover was going to make that dash in their car to get to Carpus, a policeman on horseback came through, and so they hesitated, and then a boy on a bicycle, and they hesitated a second time. And so by the time Tolson and Hoover and the two other agents made it across the street behind Carpus's car, Carpus was already behind the wheel, and Hunter was getting in on the passenger side. And Hoover indicated that just as they had entered the car and Carpus had his hands on the steering wheel, that's when they pulled up behind them, Hoover, Tolson, and the two other agents. They pulled their guns on Carpus, and they demanded, uh, and they told him he was under arrest. And Carpus is indicating that Hoover hid behind one of the apartment building because he had a real fear of death. And that's why he, up until this point, he never made an arrest himself. He was so afraid that he was going to get shot in the line of duty that he never made an arrest until this day before. And Carpus said that he was hiding, who was hiding behind an apartment building. And once Carpus and Hunter had entered their car, it was the other agents that secured Carpus and Hunter. And then they yelled out to Hoover, it's okay, boss, you can come out now. And so Carpus says, no, he didn't make the arrest. He was hiding behind an apartment building because he was basically scared. And the other agents made the arrest, not Hoover. And so that is the competing testimony from both sides. But there was enough anger between them that Hoover, for as long as he lived, made sure Carpus stayed in prison. Absolutely. In fact, um, when going back to the book, he told the field offices there, the agents there in the field office in San Francisco, if this guy comes up for parole, you need to let me know. 
because he is a killer and he does not deserve to be out on the street. And so Carpus said, I think I mentioned the average time spent in Alcatraz for any prisoner was five to seven years. And Carpus spent almost 26. That was because every time he came out for parole, this would happen. Hoover would be notified and the parole would, would be declined. Could you summarize Carpus's time in Alcatraz? Anything that stands out to you about his incarceration? Well, the remarkable thing I think I was able to do with this, and the readers can be the judges, I was actually able to connect with four or five of the inmates, maybe a few more than that, uh, that spent time from uh, uh, the late 30s until when Carpus left the island in 1962. And these are men that knew Carpus well, that called him friend, that, uh, you know, witnessed some of the scuffles he had with other inmates. I can tell you when he first got there in August of 1936, when he got to the island, he got in a lot of fights. And I documented some of those uh, disagreements with uh, some of the inmates. And he hated George Machine Gun Kelly um, because... Machine Gun Kelly felt that Carpus, who on a couple of documented exchanges with the FBI, thought that Carpus was a snitch. And so he and George Machine Gun Kelly never got along because George Machine Gun Kelly claimed that he witnessed him go out in private sessions when the FBI agents would come to the island, which they did quite often to gain information and to make plea deals. And so, in any case, he had it out with George Machine Gun Kelly. He had some interaction through other inmates with Al Capone. But the first four or five years, he did pretty much nothing but get in and fight with other inmates. Uh, we don't really know what the source of those arguments were. It's not indicated in the prison records. Uh, but there's uh, one instance where another inmate by the name of Allie Anderson hit Carpus in the eye, and he had a black eye for a while. He also was behind a lot of the strikes that went on at uh, the prison, and Carpus himself claimed that, that basically people, other inmates there, looked up to him. He was a leader in the prison, but that was disputed by other prisoners. So the take from other prisoners is there are no leaders in Alcatraz. Everybody's on the same level. But Carpus thought so highly of himself, and he was so highly regarded coming into Alcatraz because he was the last public enemy, number one of the Depression era, and had this whole history behind him that he did have some sway there in the prison. But it's remarkable when he tried to have his fingerprints removed, another inmate who's now, I believe, 89 years old, by the name of Robert Shabline, inmate number 1355, indicated that he was good friends with Carpus. And in the late 50s, early 60s, they used to walk the yard together. They talked about when they got out, maybe connecting with Mickey Cohen, and about a new technique that Bob Shabline had come up with to remove one's fingerprints. And so Carpus seemed very interested in this idea. And nothing, of course, ever became of it because Carpus was paroled in 62. 
and uh, Bob Shabline went elsewhere when he got out. And so uh, they never really reconnected. But the amazing part is, is that out of all this at Alcatraz, that he had all these relationships and different kinds of relationships, both negative and positive, was that he was responsible for getting the plaster of Paris from the hospital at Alcatraz. He worked there while he was incarcerated. He worked in the hospital, and he actually helped Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin purportedly escape from Alcatraz by providing this uh, plaster for the dummies' faces in uh, 1962, right before he was paroled, uh, I think within just a few weeks of when he actually left um, Alcatraz Island. And then in June 1962 is when those three men made their escape. But he he was part of that big plan and may have been successful to some extent. He was paroled in 1962? Um, well, I'm sorry, he was. He was transferred in 1962. I used the wrong word. He was transferred in 1962 from Alcatraz to McNeil Federal Penitentiary off Washington State. Then in 1969, I'm sorry, uh, he was paroled. He served some time with his old pal, Doc Barker, at Alcatraz. Yes, he did. And Doc Barker, sadly met his demise on Alcatraz Island, trying to escape in 1939. Barker uh, tried to swim ashore and was shot by guards, right? Right, right, yeah. He was uh, he was shot in the water, and the other um, escapees indicated that no warning was given to them. They're supposed to warn them before they shoot. But the other gentleman that survived uh, said no warning was given, and they just, they believe they just shot Doc Barker, and he died that evening. So what was the encounter that Carpus had with Al Capone? I mean, I know, I know that Capone was pretty sick by this point. Well, he actually had syphilis, so that was really what was rotting his brain. I think I mentioned some of the um, witnesses, the other prisoners indicated that he would just he would slobber. He would sit in a corner, disheveled, crying. He just was really in bad shape by the late 1930s, and inevitably that's why they released him, because they knew he was a threat to no one. So when he was released, he went back to his home in Florida and really wasn't heard from again. But Carpus um, and the other inmates described him as a very... Carpus, I think he said when he first got on the island and he saw Capone, he said he's not, he doesn't even resemble the man that, that he once knew. So I don't think there was any contact that I could find between Capone and Carpus directly because they basically kept Capone out of, out of the general population there at the prison because he was getting really bad off and also he was attacked and almost killed by another inmate. And so as time went on and he got worse, it kind of kept him out of general population. So to my knowledge, I don't think he had any direct contact there at the prison with Capone, but he saw him and he noted that he was he's quite debilitated. Pre-Alcatraz, was there a relationship between Carpus and Capone? I don't think 
there was really a relationship because he doesn't ever really talk about him, you know, directly. Uh, I think there was communication through similar associates that they may have shared, but I don't really. He he mentioned in his televised interview with Larry Solway that you know that he could have worked for those those mobs, but he chose not to because things were quite worse if you were in those circles than just being, as they call themselves, a thief. He never classified himself as a gangster. He always called himself a thief. And so I think they just ran in completely different circles. And Carpus was smart enough to know what was going on in those bigger circles with Capone or Luciano or any of the big wigs to know to stay small. So to my knowledge, I don't think there was any direct conversation. So how can people find out more about you and buy your book? Oh, uh, thank you for asking. Um, it's available most most online sites. So if you go to Ingram or Amazon.com and you just enter Public Enemy, uh, my book along with several others will pop up there. But any online source, it's available. Um, it's available at most Barnes & Noble bookstores. But I think the easiest for folks, and also they can review what is said online about the book from people that have read it from front to back. Your best source is probably just going on online. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day for this. Absolutely, Eric. Thank you so much. I, I greatly appreciate it. And thank you for keeping this part of history alive. Well, thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Again, I have been speaking to Julie Thompson, author of The Hunt for the Last Public Enemy in Northeastern Ohio, Elvin Creepy Carpus and His Road to Alcatraz. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.